Jose Barrios is a pitcher for Minnesota. He had a no-hitter going for six innings on Saturday. Twelve strikeouts, no walks, one hit batter, and of course, no hits. So the manager pulled him because of pitch count. Because the fans watching that game didn't want to see a no-hitter. They were concerned about pitch count and the long-term effect that pitching too long might have on Barrios' season and his career. If baseball was managed then like it is now, Don Larson would have been pulled after six innings. We're going to talk more about that later. Baseball has made itself into a shell of what it used to be, a pathetic parody of the baseball I grew up watching and loving. All the managers manage exactly the same. You could learn to manage in the big leagues in about 15 minutes. You could practice by playing Stratomatic or APA, the board games. It's the same thing. You'd be ready to go. Maybe 15 minutes is an exaggeration because, after all, it takes about a half an hour, 25 minutes to play a game of APA. So maybe three games of APA. Let's just round it up to two hours. You, too, could manage in the big leagues. Sticking with pitch count, Mitch Keller had a problem with pitch count yesterday. He threw 77 pitches in three innings, and most of them were not very good. They should have made him pitch the whole game, 230 pitches or whatever. This is the Mark Madden Show. We got the national championship game tonight in men's hoops. Gonzaga and Baylor. Gonzaga looking for an undefeated season after that great win Saturday in the semi against UCLA. It goes to OT and Suggs hits the half-court shot to break the tie and win it. All of Gonzaga's wins, but one, had been by double digits before that game, but the Zags didn't flinch in that game. They were super cool and super bad. I cheated. I didn't watch till I saw on Twitter that the game was tied late, and then I turned it on. It was a great finish. People are comparing that shot by Suggs to the Christian Leitner shot of 92. I thought the Leitner shot was bigger and better for a couple reasons. A, it's Duke, Kentucky. Bigger names, bigger game. B, Duke was trailing. If Suggs misses, the game goes to a second overtime. If Leitner misses, Duke goes home. See, Suggs' shot was longer, but Leitner's was tougher. He had to catch, turn, and shoot, and he was guarded tight. But it was a great shot by Suggs and a great finish, an all-time NCAA classic moment. I picked Baylor to win the tournament before it started, so we will see what happens tonight. I don't think Gonzaga is the best team ever, even if they do go undefeated. They're not that kind of team, and it's not that kind of era. But still, the last team to finish the season undefeated was Indiana, and that was a long, long time ago, all the way back in 1976. So Gonzaga has to at least be in the discussion. So which was the bigger shot, Suggs on Saturday or Leitner in 92? I actually got a poll posted on Twitter, at Mark Madden X. But if you'd like to discuss, dial 412-333-WXDX. 
That number again, 412-333-WXDX. I saw the end of the women's final between Arizona and Stanford. Stanford won by one point. And at the game's very end, Arizona's best player dribbled into a triple team and took a dumb shot at the buzzer. They had an inbounds from half court with five seconds left, and this McDonald took this dumb shot. And frankly, because it's women's basketball, no one will say it's a dumb shot. A, people are scared to criticize women's sports, and B, that's the soft prejudice of low expectations. But it was a dumb, selfish shot. If a men's player does that, he gets excoriated. We should mostly be talking Penguins. The Penguins took one on the chin Saturday at Boston. They lost 7-5. Casey DeSmith wasn't very good in goal. He allowed five goals in the second period, six goals total on 27 shots, and uh, that's going to kill your stats. The numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you at sacrifice. DeSmith has been playing a lot, but he's a backup. Less is more for DeSmith. And the Penguins were not great defensively. But hey, they had won five straight. Boston is a good team. It's at Boston. No biggie. Sid and Jake each had three points, so that line continues to be en fuego. Sid's now up to 43 points and tied for seventh in the league. The Penguins play at the Rangers tomorrow and Thursday, so just get back on track. Uh, More injury news with the Penguins. Tristan Jari said today he's at 100%. So I'm thinking he starts tomorrow night at MSG. Bluger was a full participant in practice today, so it looks like he's back. But now Brandon Tanev is out week to week with an upper body injury. And Halak was in goal for Boston on Saturday, and he tested positive for COVID. No idea what that means to the Penguins, but... The bad news on the injury front just never seems to stop. Dave Molinari wrote a real interesting article about possible rental players the Penguins might look at before next Monday's trade deadline. And there's no revelatory names on Davey's list, nobody big. Uh, He cites Sam Gagne, the forward at Detroit, as a possibility because he's got skills and he's cheap. His cap hits only 850k, but Gagne is small, so I just don't see it. But Davey also lists a few bigger players, and among them are Eric Goodbranson in Ottawa and Jamie Alexiak in Dallas. Those names might seem vaguely familiar. Two big defensemen who play big, but Mike Sullivan did not have a lot of use for Goodbranson and Alexiak the first time around. And you might wonder who sits if you get one of them guys back. But perhaps a defenseman goes the other way in a trade. And you know who would sit if they got Gabranson or Alexiak or any defenseman? Somebody. Cody Ceci has played well. He's not a Norris contender. And the same goes for Marcus Pedersen. The idea is to get better and, of course, bigger. 412 333 WXDX is the number to call. 
We're going to talk a lot about baseball's lack of entertainment value and how any personality the game ever had has been sacrificed at the altar of bland analytics. And because of that, the Stooges who cover baseball try to invent exciting moments. For example, uh, Shinjaro Otani, the Japanese pitcher for the LA Angels, he pitched in a game. They did not use a DH. He pitched okay. He hit a home run, too. But he left the game hurt early. So everybody's wetting their pants because, oh, he pitched so great. He hit this home run. You know, pitchers used to bat all the time. I know Otani's an exceptional hitter, and he plays the outfield when not pitching. He had, what, the, the elbow problem. When was it last year? Seems like he's hurt every year, and he just played the outfield, or maybe he just DH'd. I don't know or care. But, but again, pitchers used to bat all the time. Warren Spahn hit 35 home runs. Bob Gibson hit 24 home runs. Don Drysdale hit 29 home runs. Let me know when Otani can pitch like them and actually play nine innings without getting hurt. 412-333-WXDX. Don't forget, uh, last Friday we debuted a new segment on the show, the Bucko Roundup. And we will have the Bucko Roundup uh, just around the corner after the commercial break. We have Dan Rosen, the senior writer for NHL.com. He joins me at 3.30. Baseball's most dangerous writer, John Parada, joins me at 4.30. And then at 5.30, the old two-niner, two-time Stanley Cup champion, Phil Bork. It is quite a day here on the Mark Madden Show. If you keep listening, I feel confident you will enjoy it a great deal, especially the Bucko Roundup, which is just around the corner. I'm Mark Madden on 105.9 X. And now the super genius, Mark Madden. Hey, Double S, big fan, man. Thanks. If you were a hot dog and you were starving, would you eat yourself? I would. I'd be delicious. Ditto. The X at 105.9. It's time for this program's great new feature. It's the Bucko Roundup. The Pirates lost at Chicago Saturday, and then they lost again on Sunday. That Keller guy threw 77 pitches in three innings. Not many of them were very good. Polanco is 1 for 10 so far this season, and he's still really bad. The Pirates play today, tomorrow, and Wednesday at Cincinnati, and then they play at home Thursday in the afternoon. I like baseball in the daytime. So that's the Bucko Roundup. Still no sponsor. Dan Orlovsky of ESPN is in hot water because he said Justin Fields, the Ohio State quarterback, uh, Orlovsky said on Pat McAfee's show that Fields doesn't work hard enough and has a desire to be a great athlete but not a great quarterback. That feeds into a lot of stereotypes about black quarterbacks. And Orlovsky is been censured and refuted and also yelled at by ESPN. Now, if Orlovsky is wrong, that's one thing. And a lot of insiders say he is. But what if Orlovsky were right? If he were right, would he still be censured and refuted for saying what he did? 
because I think we all know the answer to that one. But a lot of people say Orlovsky was wrong. I got a poll up on Twitter, at Mark Madden X. Which was the better shot? Suggs's half-court shot to put Gonzaga in the Final Four. That was taken at the buzzer of overtime Saturday and beat UCLA. By the way, hats off to UCLA. Progressing from being in the first four to getting to the final four and almost making the championship game and giving Gonzaga by far, by far and away, their best challenge of the season today. But uh, which shot was better, Suggs' shot to put Gonzaga in this year's final or Christian Leitner's shot back in 1992 to put Duke in the final four? If you watch them both, one thing you're going to get a little hypnotized by. The Duke shots in a full arena and has the corresponding emotion. The Gonzaga shot is in a nearly empty arena and has the corresponding lack of emotion, although the Gonzaga players were pretty happy. But again, like I said in the first segment, I would go with Leitner's shot in 92 because Duke versus Kentucky is just a bigger deal than Gonzaga versus UCLA. That makes it bigger. If Leitner misses, Duke's eliminated. If Suggs misses, they go to a second overtime. Suggs took a longer shot than Leitner. It was about, what, a a step and a half over half court, but he had a chance to line it up. He got a pretty good look, and there was certainly an element of luck involved, kissing off the backboard and dropping. Leitner had to catch it, turn, and shoot, and he was heavily guarded. And the pass was from his own baseline. So it was a tougher circumstance for Leitner, I think, in terms of pressure and in terms of the shot he had to execute. So which shot do you think was better, Suggs's or Leitner? 412-333-WXDX. We got Dan Rosen up next. From NHL.com. Uh, that game against the Bruins Saturday, despite the Penguins losing, was incredibly entertaining. The Penguins, as always, played 60 hard minutes. Kept catching up. Couldn't quite tie the game. And then Boston got the empty netter. Sid took a stick to the face on Saturday, late, right off a face-off, and drew a penalty. And now all the Boston media hacks are bitching about Crosby embellishing. That's what Brandon Dubinsky started with that podcast interview. Dubinsky revived all that. What a dick. Marshawn plays like a criminal, and he dives, and the Boston media hacks are after Crosby. And that's what makes Boston, Boston. Up next, going to talk hockey with Dan Rosen, the senior writer from NHL.com. It's the best hockey talk in time. You can hear it only on 105.9 DX. 
And now, the super genius, Mark Madden. Does your girlfriend want to bang a penguin? Well, dang, but I guess if that's your freebie, then my freebie would be Crosby. But, uh... Wait, what? The X at 105.9. My guest right now is a senior writer for NHL.com, and he knows the game. Always a pleasure to get insight from our buddy Dan Rosen. Dan, uh, Alex Ovechkin keeps hitting milestone after milestone. How will history ultimately remember him, and how will history compare Ovechkin to Crosby? Ooh, the second one's a really good question, Mark. How are you? Uh, Very good. I think how yeah, I think how history remembers Alex Ovechkin is the greatest goal scorer in the history of the National Hockey League. Uh, you know what? It's harder to score goals now than it was when Gretzky was playing. Gretzky obviously has the 894, and he is the all-time leader and whatnot, but it, but it is way harder to score goals right now uh, than it was then. And here's Ovechkin at 725, six behind Marcel Dion for fifth place all-time, you know, 16 behind Brett Hall. I mean, he's going to catch Dion. He's going to catch Hall. He's going to catch Yager. And if he stays the pace, he's going to catch Gordy Howe, and then we'll see about Gretzky. You know, that's obviously a little bit further off. But I think he's going to be, the, be known as the greatest goal scorer of all time, and, and deservedly so. He's going to be known as the greatest power play goal scorer of all time, too. He needs seven more, uh, nine more goals to have that record. How he's compared to Sidney Crosby is, to be honest with you, Mark, I think it's unfair because you're comparing a center to a wing and a center impacts the game in so many different ways. And Sid, obviously, as you've seen his entire career, has impacted the Penguins in so many ways and he's got more Stanley Cup championships and whatnot. There's only so much that a winger can do to impact the game. And Ovechkin does as much as he possibly can, but he needs a guy like Backstrom and Backstrom has been terrific. But again, three cups right now versus one and counting. We'll see where it goes. Uh, Sidney Crosby to me is a top five player of all time. Alex Ovechkin is the greatest goal scorer of all time, and there's obviously a pretty distinct difference, just like there's a distinct difference between winning the Hart Trophy and winning the Rocco Richard Trophy. I can't argue with any of that, but let me throw a couple goal scorers at you, and please make the comparison. One, obviously, is Mario Lemieux, and to say that you know you wonder what would have happened if he stayed healthy, that, that's quite a leap of faith, but I think he might have scored 1,000 goals and then I go way back yeah. in time and show my age, Dan, and I say Mike Bossy. How's Ovi stack up with them two? I think he, I think it's a closer comparison to Mike Bossy because again, you're talking about a, a guy who you know, a, you know, just a pure goal scorer, right? Like that is what they did, pure goal scorer, and, and that's what they were on the ice to do. And, and Bossy being a wing as well as you know, as well as uh, Ovechkin, Mario. You're right. I mean, look, hey, if Bossy stayed healthy, Mike Bossy might have been able to score a thousand too. He had five hundred and what, five seventy three, I think it was, isn't it, for Bossy, and and he didn't even play eight hundred games. Um, and Mario, yeah, that no doubt about it. But Mario, again, center versus wing. I, I just think in terms of pure goal scoring ability, the ability to put the puck in the net. Uh, from so many different ways, and obviously a shot that, you know, everybody knows it's coming. Everybody knows it's coming, and they can't stop it. And that is, to me, what I mean by pure goal scorer. Lemieux is a better player. He's just a better overall player uh, than Alex Ovechkin. And and he was just a a pure hockey player, I think. And and that's not a knock on Ovechkin. I think Lemieux belongs in the top five. You know, uh, there's no question Gretzky. Lemieux, uh, I think, what was it? Let's say Gretzky, Lemieux, uh, Howe, or and Crosby. That's Lemieux. my top five, Dan. Great minds, etc. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's my top five. It's been my top five. And I remember my colleague, and you know him well, Mike Zeisberger, it was at the All-Star Game in Los Angeles when they were celebrating the centennial, and you had Bobby Orr, and you had Wayne Gretzky, and you had Sidney Crosby, and you had Mario Lemieux up at the table in a press conference, and Mike Zeisberger asked, he's the best player in the history of the game sitting with you right now, and they all said no because they all think it's Gordie Howe, but, uh, you know, or at least Gretzky did. Um, but no, I, I just think Mario, in terms of an overall pure hockey player, is a better. But I, I have to still give the nod to the best goal scorer of all time to, to Ovechkin. And, and again, it has a lot to do with the generations playing. You expect a lot of big moves before next Monday's trade deadline, Dan. And who's most likely to make them? I, I don't hear a ton about impending big trades. Do you? No, I don't. I think we'll see moves. I, I honestly. Like, it makes no sense for the Buffalo Sabres to hang on to Taylor Hall. So if they can find a trade for Taylor Hall, they have to make it. It's not going to be the trade that they probably thought they would be making when they signed him if they were out of the playoff race. Because he just hasn't, you know, he just hasn't been a home run there by any stretch of the imagination. But it makes no sense for them to hang on to him. So I think he'll get traded. Kyle Palmieri obviously got held out from the Devils yesterday. He'll get moved, no question about it. Um, the team that I like, I, I look at like for Taylor Hall, Mark, I look at a team like Boston, right? And, and I say, okay, they need another guy who can put the puck in the net. Score, secondary scoring is a bit of an issue for them. Taylor wouldn't go there as a primary scorer. That's Marshan, that's Bergeron, that's Pasternak, right? But he can go there and play with David Krejci. And here's the other thing. I've watched a lot of the Sabres of recently just because, you know, it's almost one of those things, you know, how do you not watch at times? And I've seen Taylor <laughs> Hall, you know, I've seen Taylor Hall not give it at the, the Taylor Hall effort that I was seeing him give with the New Jersey Devils, uh, to, to say the least. That won't be acceptable in Boston. That will get called out by Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron. Plus, he'd be going into a playoff race where he knows he'd be able to help that team. So I think Boston could be a great fit you know, for, for Taylor Hall. You've got to make the cap work, uh, obviously, but the Bruins are in a position where they can do that. So I, I, think the, I think the Penguins are going to be looking to add somebody, not Taylor Hall, but they'll be looking to add somebody, especially with the injuries that they've got, Tanev being one. They need another Brandon Tanev-type player if they're going to not have Brandon Tanev, you know. That's the type of player they need. Uh, I think the Islanders could be looking, but again, they're in LTI and it's going to be difficult. It, it's a difficult year. Forget about the quarantine and all that stuff. Every team, almost every team is close to the salary cap. And or, or in long-term injured reserve money already. And so it's going to be a lot of money in, money out type of trade. Since Ron Hextall and Brian Burke took over the Penguins, Dan, they haven't made moves, and I don't blame them, but it certainly is a prolonged case of due diligence, isn't it? Well, you have a deadline to work with. You might as well work with that deadline, right? That's what, you know, you, you hear Lou Lamarillo say that all the time, and and how do you argue with the success of Lou Lamarillo? And my, by the way, how do you argue with the success of the Pittsburgh Penguins of late? You know, they've, they've been good. They're right there, uh, you know, battling for that first place position in the East. It's, yeah, are they a long shot to get it? I don't know. Washington's pretty good, you know. But that second, third spot is certainly up for grabs for them. And they're playing well. It looks like they're locked into at least the top three spot right now. So there hasn't needed to be a major rush. When Malkin went out, you saw some other guys step up. Crosby took his game to another level, which, Mark, I mean, we see it all the time, right? When one of them goes out, the other one takes his game up to the other level, you know, even a, a greater level than they've been at. 
But, you know, they got some injuries now. You're approaching the deadline a week away. I think you'll see them. I do think you'll see them do something. What it is, though, is the hard part because I, I'm not – the one thing that's very hard for me to get a grasp on in this market is who are the real buyers and what are the costs going to be? Because it, I don't think they're going to be as significant as we've seen in some other trade markets. Who's the best team in the East? You, you, you touched on that for a second because it's a real logjam at the top, but each team seems a bit flawed, don't they? They do. Um, you're right. They do. Uh, because, you know, like Washington looks really good, but are you trusting Samsonov or Vanacek right now, right? Pittsburgh has looked really good. Injuries, though, and are you trusting Tristan Jerry and Casey DeSmith, you know, when Jerry comes back healthy? Boston looks not that great, but on paper, they should have, they should be better. And, if they're healthy and in the lineup, they probably have the best goaltending in the division, right? So that leaves me with the Islanders because the Islanders are a team that knows exactly the way they're supposed to play, plays that way almost every night, uh, very difficult to beat at home. They're 15-1-2 and at home this season, so very difficult to beat at home, very strong goaltending, no real drop-off from Varlamov to Sorokin, and both are very good. Uh, and, and they can, they do can, they can score. They've, they've scored four or more goals this season, 12 or 13 times. So they can put the puck in the net and very stingy defensively. So I look at it top to bottom and I say the Islanders are the best team in the division just because from what you said, they have to me the least amount of glaring flaws. What's going to happen next in Philadelphia? Because I look at that oh. team, which had great expectations, Dan, but I'm not sure there's an easy way back anytime soon. I don't know that there's an easy way back this season, okay? I, I, and I stress this season because I do like the team, and I like Carter Hart, and I think Carter Hart's going to figure it out. I think what they're going to need to do is address their defense. I don't know that you can address your defense right now. Uh, I, I just don't know that you can do that. they got a lot of young guys there, Sanheim, Myers, or two that obviously come up. Gospisberg has now been you know, waived and on the taxi squad. I think they need to bring in some defensive help. I hesitate to say losing Matt Niskanen ruined their defense because you know Matt Niskanen well. You know his game. I know his game. But he's not that big of a difference maker to where he can ruin a team when he leaves it. You know what I mean? So I think getting another player like a Matt Niskanen will certainly help, but those guys have to play better, no question about it. And I like Carter Hart, but he's got to be better. I, I just don't think you can overreact to this season and what's transpired here really in the last month and a half for the Flyers. They have good players. They need improvements on the back end. I think that's they're very well aware of that. But beyond that, I think you need to really understand that this team is good and it's just hit a real rough patch. Address the D. Don't mess with the goaltending. And I think they'll be fine next season. The Penguins play at the New York Rangers a couple games next. What's your take on the Rangers, Dan? I like where they're going, but I got to tell you, Kako and Lafreniere, they're kind of ho-hum. I mean, they're young. You got to be patient, but they've still disappointed a bit. Well, you know where Kako's disappointed um, this season? Kako's disappointed, and, and not until, uh, recently he's been able to been playing with Panarin and Strom, and he's getting a lot more uh, opportunity and, and production there, but He's just disappointed in the production end. Where he's been good, he's been good everywhere else. He's been strong on the puck. He's been um, right around scoring chances. Uh, there hasn't been a drop-off in his game defensively. 
it's opportunity for him, and I think it's growth. Lafreniere has been invisible at times. Uh, I think it's been a harder transition for him than he thought and many others thought it would be. And he's going to be fine. It's just going to take a little while longer for him to be fine, to be the player that I think the Rangers expect him to be. Beyond that, I mean, look, Adam Fox is a Norris Trophy candidate right now. He's been... That, that's dynamite. amazing. I thought he'd be good. I don't know if I thought he'd be this good, Dan. Yeah. D- dynamite. I mean, one of the smartest players in the league, very rarely makes a mistake, uh, can recover from any mistake he does make, joins the rush, plays just just a, just a such high hockey IQ. He's a Harvard guy. He's a smart guy, you know? Um, he's been great. Zibanejad's come on. Panarin is Panarin. Uh, Strom and Panarin have great chemistry. The Rangers are a top-heavy, top-two-line team, top 3-4-D, and Shosturkin's been good. They, they, they have nights like they did against Buffalo where they're just not able to score a lot, but then they have nights where they do against the Flyers where they can light it up and score eight, score eight or nine. Um, and they're defensively much better than they were last year. Are they a playoff team? It's a bit of a stretch for me to say that they're going to, in the end, outlast a team like Boston, who, by the way, has three games in hand and a four-point edge on them right now. But they're closer than they would have been, you know, they're closer than I thought they would have been, you know, a month and a half ago since the Banerjee had really turned it on, and they're a dangerous team. I think every team in the league will tell you that the, the Rangers are one of those teams that you don't necessarily look forward to playing because that top two line, they can beat you significantly on any given night. Where are the Penguins at right now? You touched on them earlier, too. They've been on a bit of a tear, that hiccup at Boston Saturday, mm-hmm. notwithstanding. I like them. Uh, they're better than I thought they would be. I didn't even have them in the playoffs when we were doing a preseason prediction. I, I thought they again, were really very like... borderline, Dan, before the season, and yeah. now I think they could win the division. Yeah, no, exactly. They they could. There's no question about it. Um, you know, I... I, I I didn't like, I like the Flyers a lot better, but then, you know, sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. And obviously that one I wasn't, uh, hitting on right there. You know, I, I love the way Crosby's played. You have, you have to, I mean, he's, he's been great. I think Matheson has come on and played well defensively. Marino's been solid. Obviously Latang's been good. Since the return of Dumoulin, it's made Latang a better player. That certainly is a mix that needs to work for them. Um, you know, as good as Chris Letangian is, is and as good as his career is, a player like Brian Dumoulin really makes a player like Chris Letang that much better. Uh, I'm curious to see how long it lasts here, though, because when's, when's Gino coming back, right? Now that the Tanov is a real gutsy, gritty type of player for them, you know, how significant is that injury? What's Jerry going to look like when he comes back? There's some questions there. There's no question. But like we were touching on before, there's questions with every team that could be a playoff team, especially in the East Division. And I like Pittsburgh. I mean, they, if healthy, Mark, I think they could beat anybody in a seven-game series. Finally, Dan, who's the best team right now in, in the entire league? East, West, well, we don't have East and West, but all four divisions. If yeah. you had to pick a cup winner right this second, who is it? As much as I want to say Tampa, and I do like Tampa a lot, the Colorado Avalanche are rolling. They're they're deep. Uh, they're we all talk about Kale McCarr as being a terrific defenseman and all, a Norris Trophy guy. Sam Gerrard is exactly that this season too. So they have two guys who you know in normal you know could could be looking at and saying, hey, why don't I get any you know attention for the Norris? Grubauer has been ter- Grubauer's been lights out. He, he's a Vezina Trophy candidate. Mc- 
Yeah, I think, what are they now? Um, I don't have the exact record, but I think there's something in the neighborhood of like 12-0-2 since Nathan McKinnon came back into the Yeah, they're red hot. I mean, just just unbeatable almost. But shows you how good Nathan McKinnon is and how much of an impact player is. We talk about Ranton and you talk about Landeskog and a lot of people, and and there's so much to like there. But Nathan McKinnon is the one that makes the whole thing go. And it's why, to me, I can have this debate with anybody. To me, he's the most impactful player in the league. I think Connor McDavid is the most talented player in the league, but I think Nathan McKinnon is the most impactful player in the league for his team, and you can, I can still make a case for Sidney Crosby in that argument as well. Uh, but I, I look top to bottom, I look at Colorado, and I say they're the best team in the league with one, with one caveat. If Grubauer gets hurt, they're not even close to the best team in the league. They just don't have a backup goalie right now. Dan, great stuff. Thank you, Zosh, for the insight. Great work on the dot-com, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it, man. Take care. That's Dan Rosen. Nobody better than him when it comes to hockey analysis, and you got a fistful of that for the last 15 minutes. Great stuff from Dan. Uh, we got Phil Bork at 5.30, so we got hockey talk all day. The question we're discussing now is, and i got a poll up on Twitter, at Mark X, what was the better shot? What was the bigger shot? Suggs for Gonzaga on Saturday or Leitner for Duke in 92? 412-333-WXDX. And now the super genius, Mark Madden. Double M, big fan, big fan. Hey, yo. Well, I'm not sure. It's just big and it's soft and I use a bunch of pillows and I snore. The X at 105.9. Adam Schefter was on ESPN this morning stumping for the Steelers to trade a third-round pick to the New York Jets for quarterback Sam Darnold. Schefter's a bit late to that party, wouldn't you say? But he spoke about this quote-unquote possibility like it's this great revelation and not something I've been talking about for weeks. Uh, Another football expert, quote-unquote, said that if Trey Lance, the quarterback, that if he would drop out of the top 10, the Steelers might trade up to draft him. I could see trading a third-round pick for Darnold, but if the Steelers do anything but take someone in the first round that could help them this year, then there was no point whatsoever in bringing back Ben Roethlisberger. No quarter brought to you by CW Electrical Services. Make the switch at CWElectricalServices.com. My guest right now is an all-time great in college football, the former QB at Adams College, we welcome back to the program Stan the Man Gable, Stan Gravitas. Latin Gravitas. So to your question, which shot, is the Sug shot better than the Leitner shot? No. I, I'll give you three reasons why. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Leitner shot, higher level of complexity to execute that play. Inbounding under the hoop, you got to make the pass, the catch, the turn, and the shot. Two, so that's one. Two, Leitner might Leitner's probably a, a top five NCAA tournament player of all time. Suggs is a very good player, but he's no Christian Leitner. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't I didn't say that earlier. I, I touched upon the the more difficult nature of Leitner's shot as opposed to Suggs's. But you're right. Uh, I think the fact that Leitner's a better player makes it a better shot and more memorable. It, it's kind of like I said earlier. The Duke Kentucky is a bigger game than Gonzaga UCLA, and that heightens the the uh, the importance of the shot too. 
Well, look, Leitner patented these shots almost. I mean, he had them to these shots in four years. The third, the crowd at the uh, Kentucky-Duke game went bananas. There was no crowd the other day. The guy jumped up on the table. It's an empty place. So I think that that matters, too, in terms of how you would remember the shot. Leitner's shot, that was the Roman Coliseum. This one was, it's the COVID tournament. You know what would have been great if a UCLA player would have jumped up on the table too and choke slammed Suggs through the table? Well, I, I would never have. Uh, that would be something that we've never seen before. Oh, I, I don't think you saw uh, Terry Funk turn on Ric Flair then. That's your cue. Times are changing, Mark. These nerds are a threat to our way of life. That's Stan the Man Gable, and for the record, Terry Funk pile drove Flair through the table. Well, no, Terry turned Rick babyface. Terry was already a heel, but Rick was a heel, and Terry turned him babyface through the attack. That, of course, was at WrestleWar 89, more memorable even than the Leitner shot against Kentucky. Let's go to Mike in Newcastle. Mike, you're on with Double M. How you doing today, Mark? Great. Yeah, I definitely agree with Stan. I like the Leitner shot a lot better, mainly because Suggsy's shot, he could have missed it, and they still had a chance to win in double overtime. Leitner had to make that or they don't win. But I think the true play was made Grand Hill uh, making that laser beam shot uh, throw to uh, Leitner to get it. That, he was young son hero of that play. Cause it, you, you have to hit him perfectly to do that. I mean, Leitner can make that shot, but he'll has to make that perfect pass, in my opinion. Well, and also the catch, because... If Leitner even fluffs that a little bit, he's not going to get the clean turn and the clean shot. But he caught it so clean, and yeah, you're right. The full court inbounds pass was so perfect, Mike, that Leitner had just a split second to, you know, make a move and make a decision as opposed to just reacting. And the other thing, too, is Leitner had to do it against the set defense. I mean, um, Basically, Suggy's shot was that he kind of they kind of caught UCLA off in transition a little bit. It's definitely harder to defend against a set defense than uh, when uh, when uh, what was the other guy from UCLA made that shot? Then they inbounded in uh, in the transition. Definitely harder to make that shot. Let, let me ask you this, uh, Mike. Let me ask you this: Were you surprised that Gonzaga didn't call a timeout after UCLA tied it? Maybe they were out of timeouts. I forget exactly. But but I was I was. Uh, I was a bit surprised, but I think it served them well to just take the ball and go, obviously. No, it's definitely better for your offense uh, to catch the team flat-footed the way they did. Uh, like I said, uh, like I repeat myself against a set defense, that's always the hardest thing to score against uh, more than anything. But that's what, I felt bad. It cost my buddy 100 bucks because he bet on UCLA to win outright. He would have won a lot of money. Ah, screw him. Four one two three 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 WXDX. Did I already say no quarter was brought to you by CW Electrical Services? Well, there I said it again. Uh, up next, going to talk about that absurdity uh, in baseball Saturday, where this Barrios, the pitcher for Minnesota, had a no hitter after six and he got pulled. I'll go into specifics, but let me just give you the general tone of what I'm about to say. Baseball blows goats. It's the Mark Madden Show at 105.9 DX.